0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Five Rings to Rule Them All. I'm Sid Ziegler. You can really tell a lot from somebody who is well-accomplished or well-known, famous, in the first moments that you meet them. And I was in a house on Fire Island. A friend of ours had invited us over. There was going to be a little cocktail party at this house. This is maybe, I don't know, three, four, five years ago. And I'm sitting at the kitchen counter on a stool, just chatting with the, the homeowners. And one of them mentions that they ride horses. And I was like, oh, that, that's interesting. You know, I write about sports. And he's like, oh, well, yeah, you know, I've kind of, I've been in a couple Olympics. And I, I look at him and I, and I said, oh, my God, you're Robert Dover. You're Robert Dover. You are, and I i, I, I don't know as I, I, I said all of this at the time, but Robert Dover is a legendary gay athlete. He is a, when you talk about trailblazers, he's a true trailblazer. He was the first publicly out gay athlete at the Olympics. In 1988, he came out. And in our conversation that you'll hear, he talks about that. Uh, he talks about helping to revitalize dressage in the United States and helping bring the United States back to the podium at the World Championships and the Olympic Games. And, yeah, Robert's gay. And, you know, he's been out for a long, long time, married to his husband, also named Robert. And in, you know, a lot of circles, they're, they're known as the Roberts. And, and I just, you know, it's the second time that Robert has joined me on this podcast, this time to talk about his book, The Gates of Brilliance. Uh, it's, it's divided into 15 different chapters, which each talk about a different chapter in his life, but also each one gives kind of a life lesson, uh, not just for people in equestrian, but just people. And I really, I loved how open and honest he was in this book. And you'll hear that in this conversation, probably half the conversation, we talk about his biggest failures. And for someone with such amazing success, you know, multiple uh, Olympic medals, for somebody who has been so successful in his career to, to want to... Talk very openly and honestly, and tell stories about his biggest failures. That just that speaks a lot about who this man is. Uh, I, I have just absolutely loved Robert and his husband Robert since the day I met them. I've been blessed to spend time with them, and I'm really happy to share this conversation with you. Again, his book is The Gates of Brilliance, How a Gay Jewish Middle-Class Kid Who Loved Horses Found Success. I love that. Anyhow, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Olympic medalist, Robert Dover. Robert, thank you so much for joining me. So you, you set out and wrote a book about uh, a, a gay guy who's a Jewish guy who's an equestrian writer. And as you were crafting this book, how did you think through weaving those three things together and, and did one come out as a priority other, over the others?
1: So first of all, Sid, thanks
0: for having
1: me on your podcast. I'm real excited, especially since we've known each other for a while now, and it's just fun to talk with you. Uh, The interesting thing about this book is how it came to pass in the beginning, and that is I had been asked by various companies, various publishers to write a book. For about the last 20 years. And I kept saying no because they wanted a how to book, uh, a typical, this is how you train a horse to do this and that for my sport of dressage, which is making them look like they're dancing, right? And there have been so many great books by real masters in the last 50 to 100 years that I felt that there was really nothing that I could add to that. And finally, I had thought a great deal about it and spoken with this one publisher from Trafalgar. Uh, And she said, well, Robert, what would you wanna write about? And I said, really, I've had such a blessed life and career and maybe I could speak to things that are more like reflections on certain events in my past and then maybe suggestions on, for the most part, how not to make the exact same mistakes that I made. So maybe someone can learn from my mistakes without having to suffer quite so much as I did. And that's really how I began writing the book. And that's really why the book is crafted, as you said, as it is, more a book that speaks to things that happened through my childhood, through my life, up until recently, that uh, I look at as lessons, and with the hope that they will resonate with other people.
0: The book is divided into 15 different chapters, and each one does have kind of a lesson that, that that is underneath the chapter. Chapter seven uh, is embracing the art of failure. That's kind of the lesson that uh, is listed as that chapter. Uh, what was your greatest failure? Oh my God, <laughs> Sid.
1: I have failed so dramatically in the biggest arenas in the world. For, so I have had failures in the Olympic arenas, in-world championship arenas that were not just failures. And, And I'll give you a perfect example. In 2000, at the Olympics in Sydney, we got a medal, a bronze medal, on the first day of the competition. And the individual medals were two days later. I had been having, for a long time, back issues, which is a typical rider's problem. We have so much concussion in trotting around. You can imagine year after year that a lot of times we end up having issues with uh, vertebrae and disc problems. And I had a lot of them. And I had had so many epidurals leading up to the Olympic year that they couldn't really do more things other than give me drugs for the pain. So I'm at the Olympics. Mm. In order to get me through the first day of the competition, I was on both Vicodin and Tromadol. And if you know those two, they're both narcotic, basically. And they both, one is an opioid and the other is a narcotic. And, and the two of them together are pretty powerful, but only together did they make a dent in the amount of pain that I was in. And so uh, they gave me those two drugs and this is the Olympic doctor. So, so at that point, those two drugs were not performance enhancing in their mind in the, in the Olympic rules. And so I was on those drugs and I made it through the competition. And as I got off my horse, it was just really bad. And I went back into the Olympic village and spoke with the doctors and they looked at me and said, okay, so here's what you're going to do. You're going to take about a third more of each of them Mm -hmm. and a closer to your competition time. So about a half an hour before you get on, you're going to take this much more. So I'm, I'm, Now, in my competition, I've taken these drugs, I'm in my competition, I've gone through the first half of what is about an eight-minute test that, that we have to do, performing figure after figure. You can imagine sort of like with watching a figure skater, there are judges scoring each of the movements that you go through, both by how technically correct they are and also for instance, with a, with, a, with a skater, the expression, the height of the, the, the jump. Well, with us, it's the expression of the animal over the ground and all of these various things. And I'm, so I'm halfway through and I get to this part where all you have to do is walk from one point of the arena to the other end of the arena before you go into the canter, the gallop part. And so I start walking, and literally, it was as if the lights turned on in my head, and I was as high as a kite. <laughs> and so I'm walking, and I'm thinking, "Oh my God, this is just so great!" I, all these people are watching, and and literally, I'm walking around, and there are five judges around this arena in 2000. One of them was an American that was sitting at the side of the arena. So they're spaced out around the arena. And all of a sudden I hear Robert, what are you doing? And I'm still walking another second later, Robert, what are you doing? You have to go back to the beginning. And I turn around and I I see that it's the judge from America and he's like trying to get me to pay attention to him. And I said, so you can't talk to me. Only the head judge is allowed to talk to me. And at which point I'm having this conversation and the head judge, that's the judge at the very end of the arena, rings a bell to to sort of stop me and make me come to, to him. And so I march over to him and he goes, Robert, you have to go back to the beginning. I said, you mean the beginning of the entire test? And he goes, no, the beginning of the walk. And I said, "Okay, like that. And at that point, so I start walking back to the entrance of the arena where the walk begins. And I realize what I've done. And I you know how you would get, for instance, if you we're almost in a car accident and you get like a flash of adrenaline in your, and it's almost like a hot flash in your, in your head. I had that at that moment, which sort of jarred me back to reality. And I finished the test with this large error. I had been, I don't even know how long I've been walking around, but (laughs) way too long. I should have been thrown out completely. So, so but at that moment when I started back into the test, I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, my sponsor, who is Jane Forbes Clark, who is the you'd appreciate this. She's she owns m- most of Cooperstown, New York and the baseball hall of fame. Wow. She's is, she's is an amazing woman who's been a great sponsor in all the equestrian sports. Basically, and she was my sponsor at this point and um an awesome awesome person, but in the stands, I I imagine her like red in the face, going crazy that I'm just walking around the arena on her horse. <laughs> and and so I finished the test, I leave the arena. And when you leave the arena in any Olympic venue, as you go out, there's usually this. The, an area where all the reporters are and the press are taking pictures and they're yelling and asking for comments. And they, they're yelling at me, Hey, Robert, what just happened? And I go, and I just, just said, I'm fine. So I walked <laughs> out, I gave my horse to the groom. I went back to my room was asleep in two minutes for like six hours. And then I woke up and understood really what I had done. And so when you think of that, Sid, you realize, first of all, you, if you don't have any a sense of humor within pretty much any kind of sport or any endeavor, you would basically just want to curl up and die, you know, dig a hole and crawl in. And so I've had moments like that throughout my career, those moments seemed tragic in that moment, but looking back on them, they were also lessons in how to keep a perspective, keep a sense of humor, but also how to not have the same thing happen again in the future. And that particular competition actually was the reason that I kept on going to 2004 and then I was so fortunate that I had the best competition of my life at the Olympics in Athens and the best part of it was was that my parents were still alive and they were there to watch me end up uh, ranked so high. I, I left that competition and in that year I was ranked third in the world as I retired from competition.
0: What's A lot of people would, would would say this is about, you know, and you mentioned this, you know, learning from failure or making sure you don't repeat failure. But what I love about what you wrote in the book is you said it's embracing the art of failure. And a lot of people, I think, would struggle to, to really talk about, you know, a big moment where they felt like they failed. But honestly, the tone of your voice, it really sounds like you... You embraced the art of it and at the same time learned from it.
1: Yeah. And the truth is when you're as competitive as I am, which of course, if you're at the top of a sport, you generally are fiercely competitive. So I'm not saying that I go to bed that same night with this feeling of, oh, well, I just embraced that. I It goes <laughs> around in my head. And I see it like a movie happening one billion times. The the whole moment that it happened. And I I, I mean, and it goes around and I think, oh my God, this is... And literally with my sponsor, when her jumping rider or I as her dressage rider would do what's called go off course, meaning have an error like that, the next time that... You get paid for for as a professional. There would be a little yellow highlight through the bill with a deduction of one thousand oh, dollars for getting what? lost. And she was famous always for that. If you get lost, just so you know, it's a one thousand dollar deduction. And sure enough, I had that. But that was. Actually, very generous of her <laughs> for uh, for only making it that. I mean, it was yeah, pretty disastrous for uh, for. But unfortunately, we already had a team medal, so yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a terrible thing looking back on it again. But in that moment, yeah, and and really, it's it's not it's never fun to fail and especially not in huge arenas, but it is profitable to fail. And honestly, it's the only way to really learn how to succeed at the highest levels.
0: To, to that point, was the 2004 Olympics, four years later, the highlight? For
1: sure, one of the highlights. I I've, I've been so lucky. I had... And of course, in our sport, we're able to have this longevity if we're fortunate. So I had been by that time in six Olympics, uh, five world championships, seven world cups, and I've had I was seven times the us national champion. so I've had I had so many competitions in my life, and for sure, that competition was fantastic and one of the highlights. I also had a horse that I had for as a baby and and in 1987 I won the biggest competition in the world Uh, and it was the first time in 27 years that an American had won that particular competition which is in a place near Dusseldorf called Aachen, Germany and so when you win that competition, you go back into the stadium and there are 60,000 people watching as your flag goes up and your national anthem is raised. And so that was obviously a huge highlight of my life too. I mean, I've had a lot of just very fortunate and, and, and uh, lucky moments, but I also have had as many or more failures, and, and each one, in the end, you look back at and you think, well, one wouldn't have happened without the other.
0: It was about that time um, in 87 that you were coming out. Isn't that, is that right? But so, uh, in,
1: I had already been out to friends and in every other part of my life, uh, socially, But it's interesting back then because it was very difficult to be out in sport. Yeah. And especially because my sport was so Eurocentric and I had to live in Germany. So I had been living in Germany from 86 until the Olympics in 88 And, and the reason for that was before 86, I had been to the Olympics in 84, the world championships in 86, the North American championships in 85. And I had ridden at the top of the sport, but when I would compete internationally, I failed just again and again, not as dramatically, just, I just wasn't understanding of how to win. So. After having enough of being at the bottom of the totem pole, I finally said, "That's it. I'm going to pick myself up." Even though I have no money, I <coughs> had a uh, an option to go to a place. <coughs> excuse me, where uh, the lady that owned the farm had been a gold medalist for Germany, and she invited me uh, to come there with my horses and my then boyfriend. And so we took seven horses and went to Germany without a in. but it was what I was determined to do until I learned how to win. And I basically made a promise to myself that I wouldn't go back to the United States until I had become, in my own mind, a winner. And by the end of 87, as I said, I had won about thirty seven times, yeah. uh, and I was at the top of the Western European League in the World Cup in points. and I, I w- and then I won that big huge competition, which was great because I beat Germans and a- everybody else. And then I came home in time for the selection trials for the Olympics. And up until then, living in Germany, when I tell you it was very repressive and I was I was at one show, as an example to you, where I went to the show in Northern Germany and the secretary of the show was a blonde, really very pretty young lady. And as I was doing all of the paperwork in the um, in the office, she kept flirting with me mm. and like really, I mean, aggressively flirting with me. And, and I'm like half blushing and trying to laugh it off, but also being nice and also not wanting to act, lo- uh, say anything about my sexuality. Right. So. It got to where it was so aggressive that I just didn't even know what to do about it. And then the next day, I found out that the international jumping riders who were at the show had, had formed a pool and <laughs> oh, no. had put money into this pool, either to, that, that I would go to bed with her or that I would not. And that was embarrassing. And, but it spoke to exactly what the world of sport was like back then, that they would make that kind of a joke about it. Right. And then that when I went back home and tried out for the Olympics made the olympics in seoul korea this is when i thought you know what i'm just gonna own it and that's when i came out basically at the press conference they not the press conference but they did a uh they always do with the entire olympic team for the united states they do a media kind of uh uh uh, what to say and what not to say, how to act and how not to act, especially as it relates to the country that you're competing in. Because as you probably know, if you go to Korea, there everybody is so kind and so positive, And they will say yes to you if you ask to do anything. And then as you go to do it, they'll come running after you and say, no, no, no. No, you can't do that. And, but they want, they they don't want to tell you no. So, so also, when it comes to how you speak to the press, whether it's the Korean press or, or the international press, they wanted you to say the right thing. So they asked me, they asked everybody in 20 seconds, basically say who you are and what you're about. And I said, I'm Robert Dover. I'm basically the, the, I think I said something like, I think I'm the token gay athlete for the United States Olympic team, <laughs> and so that it was, I was sort of followed all over the place from that point forward, and on the one side it was a good thing because just saying that I had a lot of press, and on the uh-huh. other end it was. A bit both scary and it wasn't all positive. So because, uh, but about three days later, Greg Louganis hit the, the diving board yeah. and bled into the pool. And if you remember all this, he ended up having to come out because he bled into the pool. And so there was no discussion about Robert Tover after that. It was It was all Greg.
0: And uh... after you came out, you know, so they're, they're, they're kind of joking around and, and, and betting money and creating pools about whether you'll see with women. After you came out, did you notice a, a difference in, in respect and in how they treated you? Because Oftentimes, I, I find this with athletes that it's, it's, the, it's the unknowing and the joking. But when the athlete really says, no, this is who I am. And you're not going <laughs> to mess with me, that people change. Did you notice change? Here's what happened, Sid.
1: I had started noticing a change toward the end of '87, not because I was owning being gay, but because I was winning yeah, over yeah. over the straight guys, and, and and some different things happened as I started winning. The same Europeans who were basically earlier the in '86 and and early in '87 who were Basically, referring to me as that stupid American that can't ride that well. As I started winning, the first thing that the Germans did was start speaking as if I were just another German, because yeah. now I've trained in, and lived in Germany. So now he's just a German. And I, of course, I learned to speak German and I, I was fluent. And at that point, they just spoke as if I was another German so they could take credit for my winning and as time went on from 88 on then i commanded respect because i was at the top of the sport and so it I, i don't know if owning my sexuality prevailed over the the way people were speaking about me more or if it had to do with the fact that i was winning And once I started winning and I started taking our teams, going along with our teams to Europe, and we became super competitive, move going forward from 92 on, we medaled every single time and uh, through the next four Olympics. So we became a true world power. And at that point, what was, I guess, it started. It started uh, not only being that I was able to command respect, but other guys started coming out all over the place, including in Germany. So now, of course, there are top riders from all over the world, as you know, because you have that list of of competitors from the Olympics. And there are a lot of riders in in the equestrian sports.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's probably more, I think there's more out men and equestrian at the Olympics than any other event. Crazy,
1: right? And yet, I can tell you from being, from 1984 on, the number of gay guys is very much the same as in the rest of the world community. So if you think, they used to say, remember like 10%, it was always like 10%, which who knows what the real percentage is of gay people in the world. Yeah. But the, there were gay guys and, and, and women. I mean, I remember the being on the bus with the women's rowing team and there were a lot of, of gay girls on the team. And it was just, it wasn't even a thought with them. And, and I think that I spoke to that with one of your, uh, tweets, I spoke about, uh, the fact that, that there were so many women and you, you said something about it. And I said, you know, the thing is that women in sports are expected to be powerful and possess this kind of strength that allows them to be ultra competitive and and winners. And that then sort of it becomes a, a simpler a simpler thing for them to feel the I think the ability to be to be gay in in Olympic sport whereas the men, whether they were divers or swimmers or really any, I I mean, i met loads of runners and just in every, in every sport I would meet people along the way that were gay. And the big thing was we have to keep it quiet because we don't want to be, you know, sissies. And Mm -hmm. so it's just a very different dynamic.
0: Well, there's no question that there, there, there are simply more lesbians in women's sports than there are gay men in men's sports at elite levels. There's I, I, I've come to that conclusion. There's, to me, there's absolutely no question. When I talk to the women in the sports, they say the same thing. Um, so it's, it's, it's not a big surprise that there are a lot more out women. I just think there are a lot more women. who right. are More LGBTQ. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, when, so when I've written a couple of books in the past, there's always been, every book, there's been one or two things where I hem and haw, do I keep that in there? Is that revealing too much? Oh, and I like you know I'll lose sleep about it one night, and then of course because that's just kind of the person I am, I keep it in. Uh-huh. What in this book was that for you? Everything with my
1: husband Robert Ross. So I I wanted to make sure that that there was nothing that he would feel uh, was not both accurate, but also something that he was comfortable with. So before the book went to the publishers and finally was published, I, I gave everything to him so he could go through it. And let me tell you, he corrected so many factual things, but also there were things that he said, this is, I'm not really comfortable with this. And I honored that because listen, he, because I'm telling my story doesn't mean that uh, necessarily everything that has to do with our relationship was like a green light. And um, so those were the places where I was a little bit Careful and also tried to be considerate of his privacy.
0: Well, you're dealing with somebody else, somebody else's reputation, somebody else's past, and that's interesting. It's it's not just should I even put it in there. It's did I even get it right? (laughs) Yeah, and also, and also, I I tried to
1: use examples that were like lessons and some of those had to do with being hurt by other people. And on the one side, I wanted to tell the story, but on the other side, I didn't, nece- didn't want to hurt people who are alive and, and that I feel, even if they hurt me, I don't want to just be looking like I'm going after them. And so, all through the sort of telling of my story, I, I wanted to ensure uh, that my editor understood that I don't want to seem vindictive. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to have names revealed where then the person would feel like I said anything scandalous about them.
0: Sure. Yeah, no, I I understand. It's yeah, we make um, people piss us off, but we don't want to make enemies, right? I mean, it's enemies. yeah,
1: and also, and also, some of the things happened so long ago that in that particular time they wouldn't have even realized that what they were doing had an impact that was negative, positive, or anything in between. So, for instance, I tell a story about having a trainer who was in the South and pulled up to a gas station and they wanted me to take a picture of them filling the gas tank of a car with African-American people in it. And at the time, being this young guy who was both Jewish and gay and had lived in the Bahamas where I was completely in the minority. I, I was in I went to a Methodist uh, school that was uh, a private school, and I think there were probably four or five of us Caucasians in the school in the class, rather. Mm-hmm. and so I when that happened, when I, of course I moved to Georgia and was living in Georgia and was 15 or 16 years old. And when this happened to me, so I was inwardly horrified and didn't really know what to do because you wanna be respectful to your trainer and teacher and they're sort of laughing about it. And I'm thinking, I don't even understand why you would want something like that so it had an impact and i tell that story but i also know that when you when i was in florida as a kid the the kids in the pony club would sing dixie and had no idea that it had a negative impact on anyone else's life that was what kids did they sang dixie and they they there were, uh, uh, I think, many many things that today would be really inappropriate. Yeah, sure. We just didn't know it, and I, I think that the Me Too movement and in the Olympic movement, we had this thing called Safe Sport, right, which is retroactively going back maybe forty years and suspending uh, people in sports in Olympic sports for life for things that they're accused of it's very complicated all of it and and but if you think of what that was 40 years ago just watching Saturday Night Fever I mean I don't think it could ever be produced again today because it's (laughs) there's so many things in that movie are wrong and uh and yet it was a what One of the big movies with John Travolta, right from the seventies. Yeah. Oh yeah. So that's uh,
0: ta- interesting. Ta- times have definitely changed um, as we as we uh, wind up here. I want to ask you about the cover of the book because there's a lot going on here, and I imagine that there was a lot of thought that went into this. Who are the two horses?
1: So one of the horse one of the horses was the one that I told you about the story from Sydney Olympics. Yep. The name Rainier, the gray one, the white one. And the other one was my Olympic medal horse from the last Olympics, Kennedy, who is like just the most wonderful, wonderful horse. So uh, I'm standing there with the, some of my medals around my neck. And uh, yeah, it was a proud moment for me. And that was the picture that the publishers thought would be the best one.
0: And the medals, I, I mean, it looks like there's a gold and two bronze. What are they? You know what? I would have to look at them right now. Because I so, know, uh, I mean, you won, you won four <laughs> Olympic bronze. You won a world I won, I won four Olympic
1: bronze. I won North American golds. Actually, what those medals are, and there's only three of the four that I've had, um, one of them... I think is a gold from a North American Championships, and two are Olympic medals: one from Sydney, one from Athens. And so, uh, I don't. I think that probably they didn't want so. If I had put them all on, it would have <laughs> messed up the the picture. So, so that I ended up yep. with those. And I think I had had my hat on because I was riding before. So I know that when they put this picture, I thought, how come my head is so square? The top of my <laughs> hair, like I would not normally have gone, oh, yeah, go with that picture. Only because that was definitely not my hairstyle. But it's there now.
0: <laughs> that's cute. Well, there's a picture of you in the back. Uh, that, that, that's, that's, that's the Robert that I know um well again thank thank you for for chatting robert and and uh, i'll let everybody know where they can get the book i really appreciate your time and taking the time to write this um there's a lot of great photos in here and stories so just you know really appreciate you sharing it with all of us thanks so much listen
1: i really appreciate all that you do for for everything for for sport and and i love reading your opinions and uh, on Twitter, and uh, so- Not always. <laughs> uh, well, you know what, for the most part, you're, you're right on, in my opinion. And I enjoy them even when I don't fully agree. So it's always fun to
0: see what you're saying. And I so- do, you know, I, like, I, Listen, I, I, love, I love engaging with people in, in thoughtful yeah. respectful or snarky ways. It gets us thinking. Absolutely,
1: that's what it's really about. And because otherwise things are so boring, right? and tends to be that we're, we we tend to only speak with people who basically we agree with on social media. So I think it's great that you have these, uh, these opinions. At any rate, I appreciate this and it's been fun talking to you and I hope I'll see you soon.
0: You can find Robert Dover across social media, Instagram and Twitter. Just look for Robert Dover. And you can find his book, The Gates to Brilliance, How a Gay Jewish Middle-Class Kid Who Loved Horses Found Success just again, search on Google. There are lots of different ways to get the book. On Amazon it's doing quite well, which is really great to see. And you know, it's while the framing of the book is certainly his career in equestrian, it really is about a lot more than that. And I, I don't think that you need to be a fan of dressage to get to get a lot out of the book. Like I said, there's you know, life lessons and, and great stuff in there and, and cool stories. So go go get his book, check that out, support Robert. He's again just a great guy. actually absolutely loved getting to know him and his husband. Uh, that's all we have this week. Come on back next week for another episode of Five Rings to Rule them all.